That was the J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut, a movie podcast for movie fans. My name is Andreas. I am the creator and one of the writers for Films Fatale. My top 100 best shot films of all time just came out last week, so um, it's full of cinematographical goodness. And yeah, otherwise, who else do I have with me? James here content creator and stay-at-home husband i produce and release music under the alias boutique paul i'm one half of the prefer not to say podcast and i am also a contributor of films fatale i'm rachel and i round out the films fatale team by being number three i write about uh world cinema and lost films which are two of my big interests and i came up with tonight's topic so what i was thinking about was how some films are successful but in a way that we didn't really anticipate so for example maybe it's a film meant for kids but adults relate to it more or it becomes famous 40 years after it came out or it was made for a global audience but really really took off in one particular country so there are many examples of this throughout history and i'd love to hear some of yours absolutely uh who would love to go first i'll go Sure. All right, James, what did you pick? I decided to go with a film that had a modest but really small theatrical run and didn't really become a, I guess, quote unquote, classic until it hit TV syndication. I decided to go with 1983's A Christmas Story. Okay. That's an interesting one because I, I feel like that's one that maybe people don't really think of with a topic like this. So I, I guess it didn't do well at all when it first came out, huh? Well, I'm looking it up. It said it had a budget of $3.3 million and the box office was $20.6 million. So they made it, they made kind of a profit, but apparently the release, it was gone within like weeks, like, like four or five weeks. Yeah. I had a really small theatrical run and then it started being syndicated on television and it went to multiple networks throughout, you know, mid to late 80s and the early to mid 90s and then in 1997 is when the network tnt who still holds the broadcast rights decided to go with the 24-hour christmas story marathon which became probably one of the most annoying things ever at least for me for a number of years but i will say i realized later in life that television has a lot to or did have a lot to do with getting in the Christmas spirit. Like it felt like Christmas because there was a lot of Christmas themed stuff. So that was how I always associated it because there were so many things I'd watch. Well, personally, I think that's very interesting because it's a wonderful life had such a similar trajectory. It was critically decently received, but it didn't get great box office. And then it sort of fell into either public domain or really cheap rights. I can't remember. And it found another life in television as well. So this seems to really be a Christmas thing. (laughs) Yeah, I was just about to bring that up. What is it about Christmas that does this? Is this perhaps because the holiday season grants a new life where you're going to watch Christmas stuff? What's on TV? What do you have access to? Why don't we just give this a shot? And perhaps when it's given this opportunity to not be forced through promotion or, you know, theatrical release. These types of films kind of just resonate a little bit better when people give their own personal afflictions to these films and their households. And maybe that's what it is. I think it has more so to do with the fact that a lot of these films, it seems like they tend to do better on television. Like I'm not running out to the theater to see a Christmas movie. 
So I think that could be part of it as well, because you know, there's nothing like during the holiday time sitting on your couch with your family, drinking hot cocoa and like watching Christmas movies. Yeah, pretty much. It also Christmas really ties you to your home. So I think there's a, a lot of sort of yes, I've I've got to stay home with the family. I don't have to go to work, and everything's closed and it's cold out. So let's flip on the TV. Yeah, I think uh, that's a fantastic observation, especially because you also have that that comfort in your home, and it's it's like you know the mood lighting or you know the popcorn for certain films for Christmas films. Just being in your home kind of kind of heightens the comfort and warmth of a lot of these films, unless it's like a bad Santa or something, of course. Yeah, I think with the advent of streaming, I think it kind of gone to the wayside because I don't really have a sense of a lot of things culturally at this point anymore because I'm used to like seeing things on TV. Like like all these Christmas things, it was like, you know, there was a period of time and everything had a Christmas special. So it's like, you know, it was almost like it's very integral to the Christmas experience. Yeah, I remember waiting eagerly for whatever show I'd like to have a special on. And yeah. Sounds good. Well, I think that's uh, that's one way that something can be released, you know, whether it's a film or a television series. And it kind of picks up a different audience or a different audience from a different era than anticipated. So, um, yeah, uh, I guess I'll, I'll go next. Mine's a little bit more um, uh, deviant, let's say. This one actually makes me laugh a lot. And it was hard for me to actually think of a film of this nature. I can think of a lot of instances where the wrong people watched these films, like parents bringing their kids to Pan's Labyrinth or Fast and the Furious fans watching Drive, that sort of a thing. But the one that stood out the most... I'm not going to beat around the bush. It's Reefer Madness. I feel like it's 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 so ironic and hilarious that this film, released in the 30s by uh, Louis J. Geisner, was supposed to stop people from smoking the devil's lettuce, to stop smoking marijuana. But now it's like one of the go-to films for for uh, marijuana enthusiasts to watch because it's accidentally just so hilarious with how extremely over the top its propaganda is and how, um, how factually inaccurate it is, like with what people do when they're high. Oh, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's really interesting because it was brought up before. And well, I was kind of quick scrolling through to try to do a little bit of research. When we were talking about it last that it originally was made by a church who wanted to obviously make anti-marijuana propaganda. And then when these rights were purchased and recut and it became this like cult film, it's really interesting because it almost predates meme culture. Yeah. In a way. Accidentally. Yeah. It's like accidental with it as well, where it's like something that's meant to be like the, the, the punctuation point on a statement kind of seems like, a very out there uh, from out of the blue type of joke that, yeah, like you said, you would find a meme culture where it's like, you know, what you would least expect almost. Yeah. Like it's one of those films where I know it's so bad that it's considered good, but it's, it's almost more than that. It's like, again, specifically the people that it's trying to stop existing, which are again, people who love weed. Um, Specifically, people who love weed love this film because, you know, you can get high and watch this and just kind of laugh really hard. Like, 
that's not something that I partake in, but like I like I know people who love this film, and I love it just because it's just so bad. Um, but there are people who specifically are like, man, this speaks my language, even though it's trying the complete opposite. It's trying to stray people away from speaking my language, and instead, it's like an hour of bliss. It's just so melodramatic, so insane, and just so idiotic as well. I just want to see the musical so badly. I forgot that was a thing, mm-hmm. actually. Everything good becomes a musical eventually. But that's what's interesting. Um, there's this love for this film and any aspect that's not what it was intended for. Like when I was doing my master's program, the same one that uh, Rachel's a part of, uh, Film Preservation and Collections Management, uh, we had to take care of a film. And I remember a classmate was given Reefer Madness and everybody was like jealous. Like, oh my God, you got Reefer Madness. Meanwhile, this this is this film, which as intended is a serious piece of propaganda. This, this mission statement to, to get you to stop doing drugs. Otherwise, it's just a terrible film that just is, it does everything wrong. So with those, both those things considered, why were we all jealous? It's just, it's this milieu surrounding this film. It really should not be as likable as it is because it's not intended to be, nor is it supposed to be with how bad it is. I think it's also like one of those things where the hype precedes it, where when you first hear about it, you just have to see it because it's just so insane that this exists. Absolutely. It was supposed to be meaningful and it isn't. It's actually bad, but you don't read it that way because it's just so enjoyably insane. Yeah, absolutely. That's it for Reefer Madness. Rachel, what did you pick? Okay, so there was a movie made back in the 80s, uh, a Canadian film, and it starred Megan Follows, who's most famous for playing Anne of Green Gables, and then Yannick Bisson, who was known now for Murdoch Mysteries on the CBC. Any fellow CBC watchers out there, give me a shout. And then there was Rick Moranis, who was very young. This was around the same time as Ghostbusters. So... It was called Hockey Night, and it took place in Owen Sound, Ontario, which is a real place. It's very small, and it's about a girl who moves to this small town and tries to play on the boys' hockey team. And, of course, she has a little romance with Yannick Besson. Uh, he and Megan Follows were just starting their careers at the time, so there's a lot of Canadian film history in this movie. Now, Canadian films don't tend to do very well, not the English-language ones. They get seen a bit within Canada. They may be a little bit seen abroad, but in general, they struggle. Canadian TV movies, I think, also have that problem. This one was a hit in Scandinavia. So there was a time in the 70s and 80s, and I've never, ever found much scholarly evidence for this, but I've been told by multiple people in both regions that Canadian films got weirdly popular in Sweden and Norway and the rest of Scandinavia. And so, for example, when this movie came out, Yannick Besson was in this little tiny Canadian movie, and suddenly he was a teen idol in Sweden, and he had to deal with this unexpected fame. I went to a screening of this thing, and it had recently been restored, and Besson was invited to talk about it. And he was like, yeah, it was so weird, because I was just starting out, and suddenly I was a, a popular person overseas. And it really, I really find it interesting that this this TV movie gained such a following and then later got its own restoration. I think that's so interesting because I actually didn't even know that was a thing with uh, Canadian films over in uh, the different Scandinavian countries. Like I know 
a lot of Canadians that don't like Canadian films because it's just such a such a unique type of cinema. And to know that they're doing, you know, at least on a popularity level, well over there, that's just so interesting. I did not even know that was a thing, let alone Hockey Night. Yeah, it was a fairly short time, but I'm, I'm glad it happened. Um, my theory is because it's not really um, eligible for Best International Film, Best Foreign Language Film, that sort of award at places like the Oscars. So they don't get the traction, they don't get the press attention. Potentially. I mean, again, I just find that so interesting. Do Canadian films ever have big runs in the States? Once in a blue moon. Um, and often co-productions will do well, like Room, which with Brie Larson was a Canadian-Irish co-production. Um, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, I can't remember which country counted it, but it certainly had a lot of Canadian creative input. Yeah, it's really also hard to say which film belongs to which particular country, which I've discovered while writing my column. That's amazing. Well, I feel like especially a future discussion, uh, if we do another similar episode, could be um, different nations where you know, their films do better elsewhere. Cause I feel like that's, or not even just like specific nations, but even just like certain films. Like I know Phantom of the Paradise didn't do well in the States, but for some reason Manitoba loved it. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I just find that stuff. It's so fascinating. Or Titanic was really popular in Central Asia, like Afghanistan, Kyrgyzstan. Yeah. Because to me, it's like, on a literal level, if you're speaking a language and the person you're speaking to doesn't understand, but it's almost as if somebody who's eavesdropping can understand and they love what you're saying and it's like music to their ears. That's almost like what this is, where it's like you miss your target, but you hit another one. Like it's it's such a fascinating phenomena. I don't know if I'm remembering this correctly, but I'm pretty sure I read that Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me resonated with Japanese mothers. Interesting. That I have no idea about. That's news to me. I, I think it just had to do with like something resonated with them because they were mothers and seeing someone's child go through that, that there is like this extra sense of sympathy or empathy involved with that story. That's for sure. Another topic for another, t- another time. I feel like it's, you know, now that we've scratched the surface with this type of stuff, it can only get more interesting from there. But why don't we, uh, bring things back to some certainty, something that I feel like, you know, we know on the backs of our hands, typically, let's see if we do. That's how we feel about film overall. And we're going to do a round of fast questions to see how in tune with our own taste in cinema we actually are. So who wants to fire off their first question? I will. Mine's easy. Okay. What was the most recent film you saw in the cinema? And what did you think? That's uh, very easy, actually. I'm trying to remember which one exactly it was. Okay, I think it was Lamb. Because the last time we talked about this type of thing, I had yet to go to a cinema again. But since that, I've seen The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Shang-Chi, Stuff at Tiff. I've gone hog wild. So I saw Lamb, that Icelandic film starring uh, Numi Rapace. It's the A24 released film. I was the only person in the theater... (laughs) (laughs) which is also amazing. Um, Yeah. I, with your question, am I, am I answering what did I think of the film or the experience? The film or, you know, if the experience plays into it too. Sure. I gave the film a four, I think Mm -hmm. um, a four out of five. 
I feel like it's exceptionally strong with its uh, poetic metaphorical side, but I also feel like it tries to extend what could have been a fantastic featurette into, or even a short into something that's a bit longer. Um, and I'm not the only one who feels that way. Uh, James, our mutual friend, John feels that way. Uh, I've seen critics say the same thing. Um, as a result, it kind of drags on for too long and it kind of gets aimless with some of the stuff it's trying to say, but at its best, it's actually a phenomenal film. So yeah, I saw Lamb. Great. I think mine. Okay. I remember where I was. Cause I've only seen two movies in the theaters since like returning to theaters. Uh, I actually saw the last one in theaters with Shang-Chi. You also did Shang-Chi. Yeah. I, I thought it was pretty good. I thought for what it was, I mean, I'm kind of burned out on Marvel movies, especially like since we're so late into it now, but it, it was almost, it was very similar to Black Panther. And that way we got to kind of see another culture entirely encapsulated within the Marvel universe. Also, I mean, I think it, does great paying homage to the Wuxia genre as a whole. I mean, the fight sequences were great. Mm-hmm. The lead actor was, of course, fantastic. Aquafina was an absolute treasure in that movie. Tony Long. Yeah, Tony Long. Oh, he was so great. I can see why you rave about him so much. And that's his English language debut. So I hope oh, really? that. Yeah, yeah. I hope that this is his uh, his introduction to to wider American audiences, and they could go back and see all these phenomenal films. Like he's got one of the most stacked filmographies. So. Yeah, overall, I thought, I, thought, I thought it was good. I mean, I didn't leave disappointed. To tie it all in, Simu Liu, the star, is also an alumni of the CBC television. So uh, good good little coincidence there. There you oh, go. Well. What, what about you, Rachel? What did you see? I saw No Time to Die, the most recent Bond movie. I was a little late behind everybody else, but I really liked it. I think it could have been shorter, like I think with most movies, but this one definitely, I don't really think it should have taken two and a half hours. But anyway... Daniel Craig is my favorite Bond, and we know this is going to be his last movie because he says so all the time. And I think, uh, without giving away any spoilers, it was a very appropriate way to conclude his storyline. And I can't wait to see what the next Bond has in store. Fantastic. Um, I'm going to ask something a little bit more different. And again, um, if if this is too, too ambitious, uh, please let me know, because I do have a backup. If you could bring any film of any time period, so any film ever, to any place and time back in history, so if you had this time machine and you could go anywhere, what film would you love to show the people of yesteryear in what area? So if you need time to think, I could give an example. Okay. Sure. So like if I was thinking of like, you know, Georges Méliès and, you know, the Lumiere brothers, and thinking what would happen if I could bring Amelie, which is so inspired by, by that French cinematic vision, like that, uh, that whimsical, magical type of, of cinema, and bring that to some of the earliest filmmakers, you know, when the medium first started, what would they think of this evolution of, of their craft and what their language would look like in, in basically a hundred years later. So that would be my pick. It would be Amelie to uh, at late 1800s France. So getting, getting that crowd when they're finally getting, you know, used to this new invention called film and seeing it a hundred years later, what that would look like. So I would take 
Noah Baumbach's 2013 film, Francis Ha, co-written and starring Greta Gerwig. And I would take that back to the late 50s, early 1960s French New Wave directors as a way to show them how long their influence has lasted. I like that. It's it's very French New Wave influence. Like, you know, I mean, aside from just the black and white, but the tone of the film and the characters and just the way it's kind of going about, it's people just existing and the situations they get into. So, you know, I, I think they'd be happy to know that, you know, even, you know, five something decades later that their influence had that much of an impact. Yeah, it's not even just French New Wave. It's like different various uh, French styles, like Leo Carax as well. Like the um, the modern love scene comes straight out of Mulvey Song, which is the Leo Carax film. And uh, which itself, uh, Leo Carax is also inspired by French New Wave, you know, to a varying degree. So uh, might as well go right to the root of it. You know, I feel like that's, that's, a, that's a great one. Rachel, what about you? In 1938... There was a list that came out of stars that were considered to be box office poison. So Hollywood decided that these mostly women were unattractive, uninteresting, and were not going to be Hollywood draws. Uh, Joan Crawford was on the list. I think Barbara Stanwyck was. Uh, Catherine Hepburn for sure, because it's always written about in her books. But the point is, every single star on this list would later become a legend. I would like to take one later great film from each of these uh, actors' careers. So let's say Johnny Guitar for Joan Crawford, uh, The Line of Winter for Catherine Hepburn, just round them all up. And I'd like to sit down whoever wrote that idiotic misogynist article and make them sit through all those great cinematic moments. Because I am petty. That's a brilliant answer. I love that. That's not even like what I was thinking of when I was coming up with this. That's that's. I love that deviation. I love it. Yeah, the best motivation is spite, it turns out. But not even just spite, like this, this is uh, shutting down idiocy and bigotry. I love it. <laughs> yep. So there's my answer. Fantastic. James, what about you? Well, what is your, uh, your hot question for us? Name a movie villain that you have empathy for. Ooh, I might need a second. <laughs> I can kick things off. Sure. Okay. So a villain that I empathize with is Mr. Glass from Unbreakable. Okay. Why is that? Because by the end it had me questioning, is he really a villain? Because when he realized David Dunn was a supernatural superhero, so to say, he realized that he had a purpose in life and it was to find him. I mean, it involved committing acts of terrorism, which is awful, but you know, he even says lines, he says, now that I, we know who you are, I know who I am. And they proceeds to say that he isn't a mistake given his condition. So it's just one of those moments where you have to sit back like, wow, he did all these messed up things, but it's, he's still human. And there is a reason for this. I mean, yeah, he decided sacrifices had to be made, but he actually, you know, ended up, you know, truly realizing who he was. And I don't know, just the, the final scene of that movie just always resonated with me with how impactful it is. And, you know, is this person really a villain or is he just confused and alone in the world? Which I think a lot of people can relate to. Yeah, that's a good pick. Mine is the Baroness from The Sound of Music. She's not really the villain, but she's definitely set up as an antagonist and rival to the main character. She's getting in the way of the Captain Maria. But here's this woman. She is like one of the richest women in Austria. She's all high status and fancy and 
Uh, she's got everything going and she's got her handsome captain boyfriend and they're going to get married. And once the kids are off to boarding school, they're just going to have a wonderful life together. Then comes Miss Dewey-eyed, would-be nun, and she loses her boyfriend and everything is all topsy-turvy. But does she fuss? Does she complain? No. She recognizes what is happening here. She knows that Maria and the captain are falling in love and she bows out gracefully. That is a woman of class and that is a woman who is very underappreciated, personally. I think that's a, a fantastic one as well. One that comes to mind, and I can't say too much without spoiling. So I don't even know how deep into this I can get. I can't even give names, I think, as to not spoil. But um, the quote-unquote possible villains, depending on who you look at, they all are applicable in Mulholland Drive. I feel like in Mulholland Drive, anybody who's pegged as villainous of some sort perhaps got caught up with their feelings with what they love the most, whether it's a person or a mentality or a dream. Um, I feel like nobody in Mulholland drive outside of some maybe terrible decisions are truly evil or, and, or deserving of what happens to them. It's a very sad affair, and I, I don't want to say too, too much without spoiling, but you can you can label in any capacity at least like four or five different people and or identities in Mulholland Drive as villainous to some degree. And I mean, like the like the more literal antagonists of any sort uh not so much like the side characters and whatnot because that's a little bit different um i feel like a lot of the evil is empathetic because uh the way that david lynch makes these characters and what they represent it's almost heartbreaking a lot of the time and again uh even if people do some bad things i don't think they deserve what happens to them that's still catastrophic and just titanic in um in grief and guilt that i feel i don't hate any of the major characters in Mulholland Drive and whatever happens to them every time it it really rips my heart in half sounds like you need to do an article about that yes i agree (laughs) about Mulholland Drive (laughs) like go deeper go deeper into it like that's actually a really interesting analysis for that movie Uh, I can't recall if both of you seen it I have I have not actually I know I know I can hear you yelling at me from Toronto (laughs) no 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 it's uh (laughs) I I hope I didn't give much away but uh James I guess since you've seen it you I guess you understand like the point that I'm getting at I think right (laughs) I get that because a lot of them seem like victims of circumstance but they're also self-aware, but they know they can't do any different. Yeah, it's a, a weird paradoxical predicament. So nobody's like just a baddie. Uh, you feel for where they've come from. And even if you can't, you don't necessarily champion what happens to them. So, um, yeah, <laughs> they're very humanistic in a film that's very surreal, let's just say. I often wonder what happened. what would happen if the original first two hours of that film was picked up as a TV show like it was intended. Because for the listeners at home, those who don't know, Mulholland Drive was originally a pilot to be picked up by a television network. And when they passed, 
he raised funds to complete it as a feature. That's interesting. Um, having seen uh, what was supposed to be apparently the pilot, there's a lot of like sound mixing and minor cuts and things cut out. So it definitely was uh, shaped up to be, you know, in cinematic form, which I appreciate. It wasn't just kind of plopped together with an ending. So there's uh, some fine tuning to make it what it is today, but I guess we'll never know. I kind of don't, I, it's weird. I want to know because that is a series. God help me would be brilliant uh, in my mind. But the feature itself is so good. It's like one of my top five favorite films to me, as far as, you know, all things considered, it's still my favorite film of the 21st century. So I don't know if I would want that changed. Um, nonetheless, uh, this isn't a special of a Mulholland Drive. Uh, this is... Um, that's next one. <laughs> that's next month. This is a... Uh, uh, hmm, I might have to recommend that to Rachel for the smorgasbord. We'll see. Uh, this is uh, about all films. So uh, we're going to do our weekly recommendations of stuff that um, isn't at Mulholland Drive. But before we do that, uh, Rachel, where can you find us? And why is it not on Mulholland Drive? <laughs> We can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under the K-Cut. We like posting little tidbits about film, things like that. Although we haven't done so great in a while, but that's beside the point. Um, and our cinematic smorgasbord, our collective film is going to be Disco Dancer. And then our individual picks are The Double Life of Veronique, Some Like It Hot, and Coherence. So feel free to check those out at home. Fantastic. So uh, in terms of random recommendations... I don't know why this is going to be mine. Um, That's why it's random. Exactly. I I can't think of anything else right now. I think maybe I just have a Robert Eggers on the brain. Uh, I'm just going to go with The Witch. Um, I uh, reviewed the film for Halloween, like at the start of, of October. And I mean, I've seen it before. But I don't know, maybe I'm just anticipating his his upcoming film, which has so many of his already veteran actors like Anna Taylor-Joy and uh, Willem Dafoe. But it's also going to have Bjork returning to the big screen. So, um, Oh, really? Be, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's going to be a minor part, but I'm so stoked. So, uh, yeah, nonetheless, uh, The Witch is one hell of a debut, and I love that film. So let's just go with The Witch. I mean, it's a very typical choice, but whatever. <laughs> All right, all right. Well, mine is The Desk Set from 1957. Sometimes it's just Desk Set, sometimes it's The Desk Set. And it is a Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy rom-com, their second last movie together. It's a very funny take on the Office comedy, a relatively early one. And um, if you're a library or information nerd like me, you're really going to enjoy it. And there's a great supporting cast, too. All right. For mine, I'm going to go with 2012's Chronicle, directed by Josh Trank, because I think it is probably one of the most interesting found footage films that has ever been made. And I also find it unfortunate that Josh Trank since then has only directed two films, one of them being that awful Fantastic Four reboot. Uh, I haven't seen Capone yet. I want to see that mainly because Tom Hardy stars and LP does the score. So I'm like hooked on that alone. But yeah, I don't know. He's one of those like talents that just something happened and it didn't quite go right. It's not unlike Richard Kelly, but not as bad. Fair enough. Well, uh, hopefully that is a lot for you at home to discover. If you haven't watched these films already, thank you so much for listening to the K cut and we'll, uh, you know tune in next week and we're going to have some more interesting cinematic discussions so that was the k-cut now we're going into the l-cut 